Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Let's look at Mark chapter 6. And now Hawk did a fantastic job of concluding Mark chapter 5, and now we see Jesus moving along from this area where he was teaching, and he's going back to his hometown. And the point that we're going to settle down on today is that Jesus is offensive to the world. You may be surprised to note that, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, one of the more common reactions to Jesus in the New Testament was fear. And another common reaction to Jesus was that he offended people. In fact, Jesus was an equal opportunity offender. He offended the religious elite, his own people, the Jews. He offended offended the Herodians, the people that were selling out to the Roman Empire. So in one sense, he offends the the conservatives. He, He offends the people that watch Fox News. And he also offends the liberals, the people that watch MSNBC and have sold out. I mean, he offends everybody. He offends his his own family who thought he was crazy. He he offends all across the board, and we're going to look at today where we see Jesus offending the people in his own hometown. So let me pray and ask the Lord to help us, and then we'll work our way. I'll read this, and we'll work our way through it. Father, as we come to your word now, as Wayne prayed for us at the beginning of the service, we're, we're not unaware. I, I know it seems like there's a sort of uh, proximity that when something happens sort of far away, it's not as poignant. But we do, Lord, think about these people in Connecticut. And this age of news and internet has, in in a strange way, sort of shrunk the world. And this past few days, we've seen these terribly sad images of pain and suffering and evil that has visited this town. And Lord, we, we wrestle with understanding your purposes in this world. And we so often wrestle with understanding even just basic truths out of your Bible. And so we come to you now as needy people, as people that are confessing our own confusion, confessing our great need to humble ourselves, to not... Uh, sit sort of judgingly over your ways and your purposes and your word, but to sit under it so that it might judge us. Help us now think deeply about these few verses and about what's going on in this scene where Jesus returns to his hometown. And then let, let that cause us to think deeply about how Jesus is offensive to the world and at times even offensive to us. I pray, Lord, that you would stir the hearts and minds of Christians in this room to love you more deeply and worship you more profoundly. And I pray, Lord, for unbelievers, people that are in this room right now that have not yet trusted in Jesus. I pray by your kindness that you might give them ears to hear and eyes to see and heart to believe and trust in Jesus, even amongst all of their questions. I pray that you would do this for your glory and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read in Mark chapter 6. Jesus has come from quite a whirlwind of activity, of 
calming the storm and healing many, many people and healing this demoniac in Mark chapter 5 and then healing this woman with the issue of blood and then we see the climax of Jesus' authority over sickness and all demons with Jesus healing and resurrecting this young girl at the end of Mark chapter 5. And now he goes back to his hometown. And it says in verse 1, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Well, let's look a little bit at these six brief verses, and then I want us to consider three ways that Jesus offends the world today. But we'll get to that in just a moment. First, let's, let's look at Jesus returning to his hometown of Nazareth. And Nazareth is, is a very small place. In fact, it's not mentioned much in the Bible. It was a town of probably about 500 people. So there's probably about as many people in this room as there were in Jesus' hometown. Now think about that. Think about growing up in a small, little, dusty, desert town outside of Jerusalem with about 500 people. And think about all of the dynamics that go on in a, in a small town. Think about just kind of the rumors. Think about the reputations that get developed. And think about just the things that kind of, just how everybody kind of knows each other and is in each other's business. And, and now Jesus is coming back to this this town of about 500 people. And really the, the only other significant play that Nazareth gets in the Bible is at, at the end of John chapter 1 where, where Jesus is calling those two disciples and Philip, Nathaniel asks Philip, he says, what, can anything good come out of Nazareth? My, my hometown was a little bit like that. Kind of like, can anything, can anything good come out of little dumpy El Centro? It's just a little border town with nothing but taco stands and, you know, tumbleweeds. And Jesus is, is from a place like this. Speaking of my hometown, actually, there's, you know, these, I think there's even here in Columbus, and maybe when you're going into Harris County, there's, there's those little signs that, you know, say that a significant achievement of maybe a sports team. <laughs> if you go in Interstate 8, you drive from San Diego to my hometown, El Centro, California, which is about an hour and a half away, somewhere along there in the middle of nowhere in the desert. As you're approaching my hometown, it'll say, like, El Centro High School, State soccer champs, 1988 or something, you know? <laughs> you know? And now you're going to Harris County, like, 3A cheerleading champs and you know, 1993, which I'm nothing, great, that's wonderful. I'm glad that my soccer team won and way to go, girls. But I mean, cheerleaders and soccer teams get more home, play from their hometown than Jesus does. Think about just the humility of the creator of the universe. This is the same one that Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 say, upholds the universe by the word of his power in whom all things consist. God the Son made flesh dwelling among us and he, he can't even get a sign outside of his hometown. In fact, he, he receives scorn 
It says there in verse 2 that he, on the Sabbath, began to teach in the synagogue, and initially people seemed to be astonished by him. And they asked a few questions that at least initially seemed to be positive. Where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? The people were initially astonished by Jesus. As he began to teach, their questions turned a little bit more negatively. And in verse 3 it says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Now that's significant. This was a patriarchal culture. And so... Everything was according to the line of your father. And for them to ask this question with identifying Jesus as the son of Mary, not the son of Joseph, is a not-so-subtle jab at their thoughts about the possible illegitimacy of Jesus. I mean, it's a small town. Come on, I know it's been about 30-something years, but Jesus, um, weren't your parents married in June and you were born like September? And so by them saying that this is the son of Mary, they, they are undercutting. They're, they're, they're saying that we don't even know who your father is. That's what his hometown is saying to him. Is this the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? They're not his sisters here with us. And they took offense at him. And then in verse 4, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. He's repeating a common sort of a colloquial phrase. And he's saying, no, listen, I mean, you know, I'm not even honored here in my hometown. You know, isn't there just some sort of strange thing that even when some local boy has done good, there's almost this sort of strange jealousy? You know, we won't listen to somebody we've been around all of our lives, but maybe if somebody comes from out of town, from New York City with a briefcase and, you know, some title behind their name, we all of a sudden just sort of think they're experts. And if they have like a British or Indian accent, all of a sudden they're just, you know, oh my gosh, they're the smartest person in the world. And yet there's this sort of strange dynamic in our, in our hearts that familiarity breeds contempt. Don't we all sort of sense that? Who's this guy I think he is? And Jesus is facing that. And he says, The prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives. And then listen to verse 5. It says, And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few people, a few sick people, and healed them. I think we need to think carefully about what's going on here because I don't think that Jesus could not do mighty work there because he was somehow bound in his power by the faith of the people, as if the most important variable on the scene in a situation where Jesus is going to do a miracle is the faith of the people. It's not so much that he could not, but it's that he would not. And we need to, we need to get this because we need to realize that, that God is not subservient to, to our faith or to any other variable. I mean, Jesus didn't need faith when he calmed the storm. In fact, the disciples were scared. Jesus didn't need faith when he got out of the boat and he saw the, the demoniac running to him. In fact, there was more faith in the demons. Do you remember? The demon comes to him and says, you are the son of the most high God. But yet there's no faith in this man. There's no faith in that situation. And still Jesus exercises the demons. So, so don't make the mistake that I think sometimes Christians do, that we've got to sort of be like the guy at the fair with his girlfriend who wants to win the big 
huge teddy bear, you know, and there's that little hammer thing where you got to ring the bell, and then we just got to, boom, we got to hit it, you know, and you're, you're trying to impress the girl. You're in high school. You finally got her to say yes to you, and you know, and so you got you to gotta ring the bell, man, and boom, and it doesn't quite, and finally you can ring the bell and get the big, huge teddy bear that you get to carry around the fair for the rest of the night. That's not quite how it works with Jesus. Certainly, there's a relationship between our faith and Jesus' response to our faith and how God desires to see faith in us. And we read in Hebrews where we need faith to please God, but don't make the mistake of making our faith or the human component the, the, the decisive variable. What Jesus is saying here is that that you can't treat my miracles and the things that I'm doing here to authenticate my authority as the Son of God as a cheap little sort of quarter, like you just throw me a quarter of your faith so that I move. And Jesus is seeing their hearts knowing that there's no faith in them there. And, And as a response to that, he is, not that he could not, but he's deciding not to respond to their lack of faith on a large scale. But even then in his kindness, he's still doing a few miracles and healing a few people. Friends, this is an important thing for us to understand, especially as Americans who think that we hold all the powers of the universe in our hands by our wealth or by our savviness or by our intelligence. Jesus is bound by nothing. It's not that he could not, but it's that he would not. But yet, in his kindness, he continues to even in their unbelief teach. And in verse 6 it says, He marveled because of their unbelief. I mean, think about just the scene there. You have God in the flesh marveling at their unbelief. And yet still, in his kindness, it says he went about among the villages teaching. So I want us to think now about this phrase in verse 3 that these people, his hometown friends, 500 people. In fact, I was thinking Jesus has... His brother there, James and Joseph, or Joseph and Judas, that's not the Judas who's the disciple that um, betrayed him. This is another Judas. It's actually Jude, another name for Judas. Jude, who writes the, the, the short little letter right before Revelation. That's a brother of Jesus and Simon. So he's got four brothers, and, and sisters is in the plural. So he's got at least two sisters. And then his parents. So he's got a family of about eight, nine, ten people, maybe, maybe more. So Jesus is 10, 10 people of 500. I mean, they're like 150th of the population of Nazareth, right? And, he, and he is, he's offending these people. And so let's think about three ways that, that we um, see Jesus offending the world and maybe three ways that Jesus offends us. Why is Jesus so offensive to Nazareth, to the world, and maybe even to some of us? I think the first reason that Jesus is offensive, and we could spend much more time thinking about many more reasons, but one is that he's offensive because he is exclusive. The message of the gospel is exclusive. Jesus is 
teaching these people about himself. And if you remember when we started out this journey through Mark, at the very beginning of Mark in chapter 1 and verse 15, Jesus' first words are the gospel that are recorded there. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is here and that the only way to become part of that kingdom of God is to turn away from trusting in yourself, turn away from your own righteousness, and to believe in the gospel which is the good news of who Jesus is and what he is doing in the world. And finally, now we now can retroactively look back at it and know that the gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done on the cross in his death and burial and resurrection to atone for all sin. And at the core of the Christian faith is this tenet that Jesus is the only way. In fact, he says that in John chapter 14, verse Six, he says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Do you see, though, how the world reacts to this? In fact, maybe even some of you in this room might even consider yourself a Christian, but if you were really pressed, you would say, yeah, but, you know, maybe just the good guy that, you know, the good guy that maybe doesn't believe in Jesus or he's some other religion. I mean, he can, he can kind of make it too. But I want you to see something here. I want you to see how the exclusiveness, and by exclusiveness I mean that Jesus is the only way, is actually a kindness of God. Think with me just sort of logically. Let's carry out philosophically what the consequences of Jesus not being the only way, or that maybe we were sort of saved by our our kind of basic morality. Think, think Think about how arbitrary and fearful that sort of system could be. Think about, think about if it's not through Jesus. Think about if we don't make it to, to life eternal with God forever through Jesus' work alone on the cross and his death and his burial and his resurrection. Think about it if it was just sort of based on what I think most of us sort of feel. It's kind of like a general system of karma. You know, it's sort of do good and kind of be a relatively good person and, and God will kind of judge your relative goodness and, and let you in because you're a pretty good guy. Think about, now this is carry that thought forward for but think about how how dreadful that would be i mean where would that line be of 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 acceptance and non-acceptance i mean think about the worst person that's ever lived and then think about the best person that's ever lived sort of morally worst best where, where along that line is is good good enough and where do you and I fall in that line? I mean, I, 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 if I'm judging it, I'm kind of always at least the last guy in that makes it. I don't want to be so proud to think that I'm definitely over here. But, but, I, but I mean, come on, everybody's going to draw the line at least one beyond them. But do you see how the exclusivity of the gospel actually leads to an incredibly inclusive message because there's grace. You don't need to trust in yourself. You don't need to trust in some philosophy. And the good news of the exclusivity of the gospel is that it leads to incredible inclusiveness. So, so the drug addict, come. So, so, so the person with, with, with dark skin, come. The person with light skin, come. The person wrapped in sin, come. The person who is down and out, come. The unrighteous, come. The pornographer, come. The adulterer, come. The murderer, come. Because all come through Jesus and not through themselves. Do you see how radically that turns upside down our notion of exclusiveness? That whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jew, Greek, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, 
person from Georgia, person from Alabama, person from California, white, black, brown, sinner, church kid, all whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And do you see the kindness of God putting it on Jesus' righteousness and not on relative human righteousness and how that exclusivity is actually God coming to us in kindness and leads to the most inclusive message of all, whosoever comes. But this leads us to the second way that Jesus offends he offends because he crushes human pride. This message of the good news of the gospel crushes human pride. In, uh, in Luke's account of this return to his hometown, we get a little bit more detail. Let me, let me turn. Don't turn there. We'll have it up on the screen, I think. Luke chapter 4, verse 23. Luke elaborates on this scene a little bit more. And in verse 23 of Luke chapter 4, and Jesus is speaking to these people in his hometown, and he said to them in Luke 24, 23, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. In verse 24, he said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So what's happening here? Jesus is speaking to his hometown who are Jewish people, the people of the Old Testament covenant, the people of the law, the people of the circumcision, the children, the descendants of Abraham. And Jesus is saying to them that the gospel has come, but his own people have rejected him, like Robert read this morning out of John 1, and now... These pagans, this, this filthy widow from the land of Sidon who's a Gentile, and this filthy leper, Naaman, who's a Syrian, the gospel is coming to them, that, that God chose to heal them because his people rejected them. And so he's infuriating his people. He's crushing their pride in being right with God because of the fact that they're ethnic Jews, and it caused them such anger. We'll read on. Listen to what it says in Luke 28. When they heard these things... All in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. By passing through the midst, he went away. Oh, gosh, if I could ever sort of be a fly on the wall, that would be awesome to see that scene. I mean, think about the anger, and they're, they're like they're pushing Jesus out of the town. They're so angry at him. And then he just sort of slips through the crowd and just, you know, dodges them. But why were they so angry? He was crushing Jewish pride. He was crushing human pride. He was crushing this notion that we are somehow right with God because we keep the law. He crushes our pride. In fact, there's this beautiful story. He refers to it in 2 Kings chapter 5, the story of Jesus healing this Gentile, Naaman, who's this Syrian general, and he has leprosy. And he comes to this prophet Elisha because he hears that possibly this Jewish prophet Elisha can heal him. Remember, 
Eli- uh, Naaman is a, is a Gentile general. Should have no business with this Jewish prophet. Yet he comes to this Jewish prophet, Elisha, by recommendation of this little slave girl. And he goes to Elisha and he says, I've got leprosy. I've heard you can heal me. And Elisha almost kind of brushes him off and says, yeah, go, go down and dip in the, the river a few times. And, and actually, initially, uh, Naaman gets angry at him. He says, I thought that, you know, we'd do something a little bit more here. We've got we to gotta earn this gig. You wave your hands around, say some stuff. Give me a little hocus pocus, abracadabra. Give me, you know, tell me to do some stuff, a couple push-ups, a few laps around the block. Let's earn this mug. But Elisha just sort of, he, he crushes human pride. He crushes merit. And he says, yeah, no, healing is free. Salvation is free. Dip in the river a few times. Yeah, it's just grace, man. Just dip in the river a few times. And you see what's happening in one fell swoop? When Jesus refers to Naaman, the Gentile, he's crushing Jewish pride that they're saved because they're Jews. And then he also is crushing Gentile pride because he's saying to Naaman, you're not saved because of anything you do. No hocus pocus, no amount of good works. You're saved because of Jesus' work. The gospel crushes human pride. And why is that so important, friends? Because we have no leverage with God. We can't say, God, I'm a good person. I pay my taxes. I tithe. I come to church three out of four work. I even got a blue shirt and I serve in the little two-year-old room, the yellow room. And do you realize how tough to handle those little cracker munchers can be? (laughs) Half of them got snot coming out of their nose, communicable diseases around. Jesus, aren't you impressed with me? Do you see how the gospel crushes human pride? None of us can say, you owe me, God. None of us can say that. Jairus' daughter cannot say, I was a good good little girl, that's why you raised me. Lazarus can't say, I was a good friend to you, Jesus, that's why you raised me. That's the offense of the gospel to the human heart because we want to earn our salvation and we want to stack ourselves up as better than the next guy. But friends, understanding the gospel is to understand the offense of the sovereignty of God in bringing us back to life through no effort of our own. And when we stop being offended by that and we revel in that, friends, we realize not only the free grace of the gospel, but the keeping grace of the gospel. Because if you didn't get saved because you did anything, then you don't stay saved by your human effort and anxiety. And friends, when you understand that, it will free you, it will free you to revel in the grace and the healing power of Jesus. And thirdly, And finally, I think the modern mind is offended at Jesus because he is so utterly and completely sovereign. And by this, I mean particularly sovereign over evil and suffering. Isn't this just one of the great objections that I think all of us wrestle with? the great complexities that all of us wrestle with. And in particular, as we we look at what happened this week in Connecticut, I mean, how do we process such an unspeakable tragedy? I mean, it's like, you know, it's one thing for there to be some unspeakable tragedy like this, but 
it just seems like another level of remorse and sadness and even anger and jolt to our system when it's a, a child and a whole host of children. And then it seems like it's, it's even amplified even more. I mean, it's one thing for there to be a, a tragedy and people to die. Then it's a whole other thing for it to be primarily children. And then, if, but if it was a, if it was an act of nature or weather, you know, I mean, we could wrap our minds around that. To, or if it was maybe some tragedy or an automobile accident. I mean, that, that's that's one thing. At least we can sort of chalk that up as well. That's just. It's just kind of the way things sort of shook out. But w- when there's this intentional act of evil, it, it just seems so much harder to deal with. How do we reconcile these things with a God who is sovereign and good? And that becomes an offense to our human heart. Either God, the skeptic will say, is 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 all powerful but not all good because he could have stopped something like this. Or maybe he's, he's all good but he's not powerful enough because he was unable to stop this. And we get offended at this notion of Jesus being all sovereign and yet all good. Now friends, there are no easy answers to these questions but let me just point us, as I conclude here, to just three, three hints, three thoughts about how we can wrestle with this and give our hearts comfort in the utter good sovereignty of Jesus over evil and suffering. The first is, if I can ask you a question, and C.S. Lewis asked this question. In fact, this was one of the lines of thinking that brought him to faith. C.S. Lewis, that British th- philosopher and Christian and the middle part of the 1900s, he, he started to realize that as he objected to the injustice of the world, which is part of the reason he at that time was an atheist, he began to realize where he even got his notion of justice from. In other words, if, if there's a possibility that this is unjust, there, there has to be a standard by which we are, we are gauging injustice. And, and so he realized that 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 this justice, this notion of justice had to come from somewhere. And eventually that led him to God. But, it, but that won't do just that, just this sort of philosophical talk about, well, clearly if we have this notion, there's obviously clearly a God, and so, so that's enough. No, that's not enough. We also need to realize that Jesus, God himself, this one who establishes justice, actually enters into our suffering. That in these moments when we wonder how humans can suffer so much, and this is hard for us to think about because the the suffering seems so poignant and real and, and palpable, but when we understand the story of the Gospels, we know that Jesus himself endured rejection and loss on the cross far greater than anything we could fathom. Think about God the Son being in eternal fellowship with God forever. And on the cross, he cries out as sin is laid. Listen, this is what's happening on the cross. The sin of all of God's people, 
all who will ever repent and turn and trust in him is being laid on Jesus, the holy, righteous Son of God, who's been perfect from eternity past to eternity future. And he is now on his shoulders. He is becoming sin for his people, and this perfect Lamb of God is feeling the rejection and the weight and the burden of all evil, all sin, all horrendous acts are being hoisted upon his shoulders, so much so that he cries out to his Father, God, why have you forsaken me? And and friends, it's hard for us to think about this, but think about the death and the crucifixion of Jesus is not just being just some sort of faraway event that atoned for your sin, but that moment when God the Father rejected the Son because he became sin for us and died and satisfied the penalty for, for every act of evil, for, for every evil thought, and for, for every mass murder, and for, for everything that all of his people would ever do to the point where Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? So we don't have a God who sort of is over us just saying, look, suffering is part of the gig here, deal with it. But he, it, like he enters it, he comes into it. And the fact that we can't even really identify with, with how much he suffered is, is an indicator of the fact that we don't understand his holiness and his greatness to the degree that we should. But, but Jesus comes into suffering and he pays the penalty fully and finally. But, but none of that means anything if Jesus just identifies with us and doesn't also finally and fully someday defeat sin and death and evil and suffering for us. And friends, he does. And that's the the hope of the resurrection. The, The Bible says that this sin and suffering that we endure, Jesus has once and for all atoned for on the cross. And that he will once and for all completely eradicate when he comes back. And he will resurrect his people. He will resurrect his church. And heaven is not just sort of flying around and some sort of spirit-like, sanctified Casper the Ghost sort of existence. With a robe and a harp and, you know, a hymn book. It won't be so much us going up to heaven, but it will be heaven coming down, restoring all that is out of place and every evil and every moment of suffering. Friends, think about this. Think about since the beginning of time, every injustice being made right, every cell that's out of place Every aspect, every particle that isn't quite right, every sin, every physical malady, every emotional scar, every moment of bloodshed, every act of terror, every murder, every abortion, every act of heinous sin, everything will finally and fully be judged and made right and restored. This is the hope of the resurrection. And this is why we say over and over and over again that life is not just about these 80 years. But it is about this hope in this time 
when Jesus will finally and fully make all things right. Listen to the words of John at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21. He says in Revelation 21 verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Listen to verse 4. This is our hope. This is how, although we cannot answer all of the questions that evil and suffering and unspeakable tragedy present us, this is how we can look at a sovereign God and say, God, you are completely sovereign and you are completely good because this is the end for which all things were created. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There's this philosopher, I'm going to mispronounce his name, and Peter Schaefer, who's very into Christian philosophy, is going to send me an email correcting my pronunciation. So thank you in advance, Peter, for your correction. This author's name, theologian, philosopher's name is Alvin Plantenga, and he talks about the noceums of the Christian faith. And he says, imagine that you had a tent and you looked inside that tent and uh, you didn't see a St. Bernard in that tent. Well, you could logically conclude that there is no St. Bernard in that tent. But there's millions of other little things, little small little insects, little small little cells that you don't see just because you don't see them doesn't mean that they're not there. And he calls them no seems. <laughs> friends, I think the world is full of no seems. There are things that we just do not see in this time that someday we will finally and fully see the purposes of God where where every broken, everything broken becomes healed for his glory and the eternal joy of his people. Uh, Friday afternoon, Robert had planned for the guys on the staff and any of their wives that were able to come to go see uh, the movie The Hobbit. And it's been quite the uh, hullabaloo in the office for the last couple weeks. Um, Robert's been preparing for this day. I thought maybe we were going to have to dress up in some goofy little hobbit costume or whatever. Um, and I'm not, it's not really my genre. I'm not so much into it. I mean, what, I, I, I guess I didn't, wasn't a very educated child. I didn't read the books or whatever. I know everybody else has read them. I mean, all I read was a sports page and a couple articles in Sports Illustrated when I was a kid. I don't know. I just missed the hobbit Lord of the, Ring, Lord of the Rings train. But um, we went, and, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was pretty good. Didn't dress up as a dwarf or an elf or whatever, um, but, you know, maybe next time, Robert. But uh, since, you know, kind of getting into this, I have sort of started to enjoy the, the movies. And in The Lord of the Rings, the same author that wrote The Hobbit, British friend of C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, 
the end of the last Lord of the Rings book, there's this scene where this little hobbit, I think his name is Sam, says to this wizard Gandalf, he wakes up and he realizes that everybody, all of his friends are there. And he says to Gandalf, he said, does, does everything sad become untrue? And Gandalf says, yes, Sam. Everything sad becomes untrue. Friends, that's just a line in a movie. But it echoes this biblical truth that everything sad for the believer in Jesus eventually becomes untrue. Every moment where we have been sinned against horribly eventually becomes untrue and made right. Every moment of my sin, the deep, dark recesses of my own heart eventually gets erased and wiped clean and renewed and restored. And everything sad, to the murder of 20 children, to the holocaust of millions of Jews, to, the, to every unspeakable tragedy, becomes untrue and judged and renewed and restored by Jesus and his powerful sovereign goodness. Now friends, that does not mean that everything just kind of works out in the end and we all get to go to heaven. It means that for those who trust in Jesus and his sovereign goodness, to them who endure to the end, trusting in Jesus, he will wipe away every tear. And everything will be renewed. And then our world will be full of all the little noceums that we didn't see that all of a sudden we see and say, oh God, like Joseph said at the end of Genesis, what the enemy intended for evil, you meant for good. Friends, that's the hope of the gospel. The world is offended by the sovereign goodness of Jesus. Are you? Or does that somehow draw you towards him as your only hope? Friend, I encourage you to look to Jesus even now. Friend that came into this room doubting Jesus, unbelieving Jesus, seeing Jesus as maybe just a miracle worker that could sort of get your life in order if you'll just come to church. Don't, don't look at him that way. Look to him as the only hope. Christian, let your heart be stirred afresh by the sovereign goodness of Jesus who makes everything sad eventually become untrue. Let's pray together. Fathers, as we come now, we long for that day when you will right every wrong. When you will wipe away every tear and you will heal every heartbreak. We long for that day when the victory that Jesus won at the cross over sin and death and Satan and all of its consequences will finally and fully be realized. 
And we long for that day, as Paul writes in Romans 16, when our Savior and big brother Jesus will crush Satan under our feet. In the meantime, Father, we pray that you would give us, those of us that are trusting in Jesus, a peculiar, otherworldly patience in the face of broken evil and pain. May we afresh look to Jesus, the one who took on more injustice and evil than we can even imagine or conjure up. And he bore it and he defeated it and he satisfied your wrath and judgment on the cross and disarmed evil of its eternal consequence and its power of accusation over all those that would turn and trust in him. Father, would you give a heart to believe for those that came into this room unbelieving so that they would look away from themselves they would look to Jesus even amidst, amidst the many unanswered questions, even though they have thousands of no see in their life that they just can't see or understand. God, would they look to Jesus now? trust Him and turn away from trusting in themselves and believe in the hope of the resurrection. Father, would you do that now as we spend some time responding to you and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, let's all